We are into our second week of a series on the Trinity. And I encourage you last week and for the four weeks of this series, it will be a little more bookish or academic than straight preaching, but I will promise that by the end of each message, there will be a moment for you to be able to respond and to invite the Holy Spirit to bring change into your life, encouragement, and challenge who you are. But in the beginning of these messages, I'm going to try to be speaking into your mind as well as your heart, so be ready. And my warning is, as we walk through it, or an encouragement, if you have a note app on your phone, it might be helpful to take some notes, or if you um, are more analog and you're writing it down, have a journal or notebook out as we walk through this series. Last week, we talked about the Trinity in the role of the Father, and this way we'll do this series is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Actually, that's not good, even how we talk about Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then the final week, we will talk about why it is important that we serve and worship a God who is relational and has existed in relationship for all eternity. And what that means for us as believers made in the image of that relational God. Today, we'll be talking about the Son. And as it is February 13th, I wish you all a happy Valentine's Day as well. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Kate and I had our Valentine's dinner last night, and we invited uh, my parents and my sister and my brother-in-law to join us for it because we have learned our lesson about trying to do dinner on February 14th. And as we do this series on the Trinity, today it might not feel particularly romantic or maybe a little too academic, but I want to point out that the Trinity is romantic, almost the most romantic thing we can think about by its very nature, love demonstrated. The Trinity is all about love by its very nature. Studying the Trinity is about seeing God as he always has been and always will be, a being primarily of love and loving activity. He is one being in three persons. That's important Trinity language. One being, he is one God expressed in three persons. And those three persons have been loving each other and actively expressing love and care for one another for all eternity. And we, as we understand God better, understand that we are made in his image. The Old Testament is a romantic story of a God loving his people and pursuing a very poor lover. If you read Hosea, you get a picture of what God is speaking. I have loved you and cared for you, and I keep pursuing you back every time you break our covenant loving relationship. In the New Testament, we see Jesus come in and speak about God's nature as a loving father. We see Jesus love the people he is called to and eventually lay down his life as a loving sacrifice. The ultimate final pages of scripture themselves tell the story of the church coming into relationship with Jesus at the end time as a bride and her groom. And the final story of scripture is one of a wedding celebration. To study the character of God is to study the loving nature of who he is. I think that's pretty romantic. Let's start in. Today we are talking about the sun. And let's look at it first before we even get into the nature of the sun. We have to build a little bit into why we need the sun and where he comes into place in the relationship. So let's begin by talking about, in the very nature of Valentine's Day weekend, twisted love. 
What does it mean for love to be twisted away from what it is meant to be? What went wrong in the beginning of Scripture? What went wrong in Genesis 3? God creates life in Genesis 1. He declares it good. At the end, he says, it's very good. He made man in his image. He breathed life into him. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the beauty in the diversity of nature he created. And then he sees that man is not meant to be alone. And so he creates a partner for that man. And everything is in perfect unity. Then we see in Genesis chapter 3, a horrible breaking of that unity. And we see the rest of the 66 books in Scripture trying to reconcile back what happens in the third chapter. If we understand God as singular only, non-Trinitarian, not Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God Himself, then sin by its very nature is doing what that God wouldn't do doing what is out of his nature. And he declares what's right, what's good, and when you are disobedient in those activities, you are in sin. And so Adam and Eve choose to eat something God told them not to eat. Okay, they're in sin. They get punished for that. But then there's a serpent in this story. The Satan is the way the Old Testament calls him, the tempter. And in this, he gets punished as well. But if you read it as a singular God, He doesn't really do anything wrong. He's just there and he asks a few questions and then the humans make their decisions, but he gets punished too. It means we have to understand what's happening in Genesis 3 and the nature of sin from a different lens than just sin is doing something God told us not to do. Sin is something different than just behavior and decisions. If we understand God and the role we're exploring in this series as three in one, as relational at his very nature, as loving presence, the very essence of who he is, then to sin is to love incorrectly, is to pervert or twist the very nature of love itself is to take the focus off of selfless care for others and to turn the focus on to loving the self. And so in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin is not just that they're disobedient, but that they moved from loving the Father and His creation to loving themselves. And the work of the tempter in the garden is a work to aggrandize himself as well and to pervert God's creation for His own love of self. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This means we are made in his image. And as we discover God's nature, we are hopefully answering some of the hardest questions of ourselves of who am I? Who are we? And as we know God's nature, we better know ourselves. This is why it's important to study the character of God. And in this, we see that we are made to love just as God is love. So in our very nature is a desire to actively be loving. As Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 27 and 29, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourselves. We are made to be lovers. It's a part of us. It's a part of our nature. We want to and desire to love another human. 
We have love pours out of us for creation, for beauty, for nature, to create new things, loving of experience. But the human sin problem, as we see in Genesis 3, is the temptation to turn love inward. Love by its very nature is designed to be external, to love others, to give for it. And sin is when love itself turns back inside and I become a lover of me. As Paul says it in a letter to a young minister in 2 Timothy, he says they became lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. We remain to this day lovers. It's our very nature as human beings. And we love a plethora of things. And many of them are just ways of loving ourselves again. We have the obvious modern construct of social media to demonstrate this over and over again as I carefully curate my image of myself so that you will see the best version of me and as I track how many likes I have on it in order to see the value that I have of who I am loving me. But I'll tell you, social media is not the only branch of this or the beginning of this. When I was a youth pastor, I had an idea one night. We used to do youth outreaches every Friday, and we'd invite kids from the community to come out and be a part of it. And we'd do different fun, crazy activities. And I used to try to change it up so it wasn't just like eating something disgusting or slamming and physically getting hurt. One week, I had it where, sort of like a wedding, I had a bunch of disposable cameras out. It also is a bit exposing my age now. This was before everybody had smartphones. I had a bunch of disposable cameras out, and I had the teens take pictures of whatever you want tonight. And then next week, I'll post them all up all over the warehouse, and you'll see what you, how you see the warehouse and the youth ministry and from your eyes. It was like my cool idea. I was horrified when I looked back through and saw that 50% of the photos were people taking photos of themselves, literally holding the camera out, taking it. One was a roll of one particular student took 24 photos of himself just in different places around the room. It's in our nature to want to see ourselves, how we look, what is going on in our life, to protect ourselves, to aggrandize and lift ourselves up. It is the constant temptation of our hearts when they are not grounded regularly in the nature of the God who created us. It is the very nature of our temptation when we do not remind ourselves that our God is three in one, that our God by his nature is self-giving and loving of others and sacrificing and caring and pouring his love externally. It means something has happened in us deeper than rule breaking and misbehavior. We pervert love and we reject God's self-giving nature in us. This is the role the Son plays in the Trinity, responding, correcting, and healing our perversion of God's love. And the beauty of our God is that the depth and worst part of our rejection of his love has not responded with his condemnation, his hatred, or his anger, but it has brought out the greatest depth and clarity of his love in response. And so let's talk about the sun today. The first nature of the sun we're going to look at is that the sun shares what is his. 
This is the very nature of the Son, who has existed for all eternity. Scripture uses the term begotten. He has always been, always with the Father, always there existing together. And He has experienced for all of His existence the love of the Father poured out on Him. The love of the Father giving and adoring and valuing the Son. We talked about this last week. And if you missed it, go back and you can find it on YouTube or on our podcast channel and listen to the nature of the Father as a loving parent. He has been loved selflessly by the Father, living in the Son and the Son being perfect in the Father's eyes. And when we talk about the Son, we are talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ. We know from the four stories in the gospel about his life, Jesus Christ that we know from Paul and the early church fathers' letters about him and what his life and death means. And we see in the Son, him teaching us and sharing with us the love he has received. His disciple John writes this about Jesus later in his life in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. He says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The father is life-giving and loving by his very nature. And in the greatest expression of the father's character, he gives us his son. And in the greatest expression of the son's character, he gives us all of what is his. He says, I am perfectly loved by the Father, and I am in perfect relationship with the Father. And so what I will do on this earth, what I will do by coming here, what I will do on the cross and the resurrection is give you what has been mine for all eternity, the perfect, redemptive, valuing love of the Father is yours through me. We have so many poor imitations of love. We have all these different terms for it and definitions for love of how we see it. Masquerading as love itself. Tribalism. I like you and I'm with you because you are a lot like me. And if we share life together and believe most of the same things, then we'll feel like we're in a good union together. And you're my brother and I love you, but I really love you because you're a lot like me and it's another form of loving myself. I love people who are like me. I love people who believe like me and think like me. In some sense, I'm mirroring my love back into myself through you. Opportunism. What do I gain from this person? What can I get out of them? I love you because of what that means and how it makes me feel about myself. You're a relationship that benefits me. I can climb the social status by being friends with you. When I have you on my arm, I look better. And so this is love that is truly opportunism. Sexual attraction, kind of another way of saying the above. Opportunism, I love you because of how you make me feel and what I want in my body. And then codependency, maybe the one most similar to love, but masquerading. I love you because you love me. 
and I need you to need me so I can need you, so I feel like I'm giving to someone so that you're needing me, and we have this circle of need together. And in Christ Jesus, he gives us the true definition of love, that love is putting the needs and wants of another above your own. And that in the Son, we see what love is. Love is giving of our very self to another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is John continuing a little earlier in his letter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In the Son coming to earth, we see him give up his power and his privilege. He had every right to live in heaven without any suffering, without any fatigue, without any relational break, to live in heaven for all his eternity from the beginning to the end, always being loved, always being cared for, always ruling, always safe. But because he is love, he came and made himself vulnerable. He came and experienced the pain and sting of hunger. He came and experienced the sting of rejection and loss. And he came and experienced the weight and pain of sin itself on the cross. In living among us, at the same time as he experienced this, we see him literally in the recorded pages of Scripture demonstrating love by its nature. We see Jesus heal those who are broken. We see Jesus restore those who are marginalized and pushed aside, and we see him feed and care for others. On the cross, we see the intensity and strength of his love. That is not some thing he bears unwillingly or accidentally or without power, but that he shows his majesty and his strength as he faces death, battles evil, and gives life. As Scripture says, he was not brought to the cross unwillingly, but that he chose it himself. No one can take his life from him, he says. I willingly lay it down. We see it in John 10, 18. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The Son shares the love of God with His image bearers. He shows us what God's love is like, and then He pours it out. When we read Scripture and we read the life of Jesus, you can read the gospel narratives in this manner. We read Jesus' life and we see what love looks like through the life of Jesus, how He treats others, how He builds community, how He responds to the vulnerable and those in need. He shows us what love is, and then we see through the cross and the resurrection, Him then pour that love out on us. This is what love is like, and this is the love that you now have access to in your life. Jesus, the Son of God, came that we might experience the fullness of God's love through him. As John records in chapter 17, Jesus' prayer for us, demonstrating his desire for us to know and understand. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. 
and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. We practice love as a hoarding exercise. We're often afraid that it's going to run out or that there won't be enough. And if others get the pleasure, the joy, the glory, the love and affection of others, there's not going to be enough for me. And that when I have it, I don't let it go. It's that feeling of that teenage breakup and those weird kind of sad, desperate texts you're sending back to them. Take me back. Don't stop loving me, please. We are afraid that if we lose it, we never get it back. And what Jesus teaches us about love is that love is meant to be poured out and given away. Far from hoarding God's love in his life, the Son shows us that love is meant to be poured out and he gives the Father's love to us. The second thing is, the Son does, the Son shares what he knows. He knows more about the Father than we ever could and he comes so that we would know God. He comes that we would receive the Father's love that is his and he comes that he could teach us about who the Father is. Martin Luther says it like this, For although the whole world has most carefully sought to understand the nature, mind, and activity of God, it has no success in this whatsoever. This is one of the greatest theological minds to ever live. The most prolific author ever to write says, I don't know, we've tried really hard, we're we're working at it, but I don't know, it's impossible. He goes on further in his letter to say we can't know God on our own. We may try and we may strive and we may see shadows of him, glimpses of him, but we cannot know the Father but through the Son who reveals the nature of the Father to us and teaches us about who he is. As Matthew says in his account of Jesus' life, no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We talk about the Word of God. And if you grew up like me in any church setting, you were taught the Word. We, we build our life on the Word. We are taught the Word. The Word is our sword in, in life. And so I was taught growing up that that was the Bible and that the Word of God was Scripture. And I built my life on Scripture and what Scripture says about me. And I build my life on scriptural principles and how they are. And the sword of the Spirit is the Word. And so I use Scripture. And if I'm arguing with somebody about faith, if I can quote enough Scripture, I might win that battle and that the Bible is my weapon in a sense. This is how almost every religion practices their beliefs. It's the Word. It's the book that was given to us. It's the, the Quran. It's the Book of Mormon. It's, it's the Bhagavad Gita. It's, it's the collection of scriptures that teach us how to live. This is the incorrect way in reading the New Testament of what the Word is. The Word of God is not a collection of scriptures that we know as the Bible. The Word of God is the Son Himself coming and revealed. The Word of God is active and alive. Because the word of God is alive. It's Jesus manifest. John tells us this in John chapter 1. That the word became flesh and lived among us. That we might know him and understand the light he is shedding to us. 
And this changes it from any other faith. And this is why the Trinity is so powerful for us. That I am not living here by a righteous God distant from me who gave me a collection of beliefs and rules to follow. I am serving a living God whose instructions and love and care lives in me and with me and is spoken out and lived in this world and lives still in and through me. The word of God is alive and active because Jesus Christ, the son, is alive and active. God does not give us something about himself. He gives us his very self. He doesn't give us something that describes who he is. He gives us his very nature in the son. In Jesus, we see that the God is Father because He's only Father because of the Son. In Jesus, we see that there is a Spirit that brings the presence of God to us because Jesus has broken down the barrier by His righteous sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus, we see a God so generous and kind that He gives us His very self on the cross. And since the Son is, as Scripture says, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, and the radiance of God's glory and exact representation of his being in Hebrews 1.3, the Son reveals the Father to us. The church writers speak about this idea like this. 2 Timothy 3.15, from infancy... You've known the Holy Scriptures. You may have grown up in it. You've studied it yourself. And you know then, the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus says it in John 5, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. We have a tagline of how we talk about Scripture. And that Scripture is a unified story, both human and divine, that leads to Christ Jesus. And that as we read the pages of Scripture, whether I'm reading a story in Genesis 12 or whether I'm reading a warning from a prophet in Isaiah, whether I'm reading end times uh, eschatology in Jude, all of this is pointing me to the work that God has done and has revealed in His Son, Christ Jesus. We change in this very nature, and this might be one takeaway from you in the total of this sermon, when we read Scripture, when we practice our devotions, to change from opening the book and saying, God, what in this book is for me? To, God, where in this book are you revealing your son? Where are you teaching me about your character and who you are? Where am I learning about the beauty of Christ Jesus and my need for him? Where am I learning about the love you have lavishly poured out on us through your Son? Where am I learning about your lordship and righteous call to lead in Christ Jesus? Where is Scripture pointing me to you? We know the Father only because the Son came to this earth to reveal Him to us, to reveal His loving, kind nature. 
And so it leads us to the final point of the Son. The Son shares with us what is His. The Son teaches us about the Father. And the Son is the model for all creation. Paul the Apostle writes to the Romans in Romans 8.29. Romans 8, powerful chapter about Jesus. He says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. John tells us in the beginning of his book that all creation was breathed out through the Word. We know the Word is Jesus who was the Son, which means Genesis 1 and 2, all of creation being breathed out into life happened through the Son. God breathing His image into us, His Spirit, God breathing His life into us. As we see creation, all of it is a model of God's goodness that we see in the Son, of God's loving nature that we see in the Son, of the life God poured out through the Son. But as we read the pages of Scripture, we learn a bit about ourselves, that while we are made in the image of God, We have done what we saw in Genesis 3. We've taken God's beautiful creation. We've taken his loving nature inside of us and we've pointed it back to be about ourselves again. And we forget how to love as God created us. We forget to live as in his image. We begin to then see the world through a different lens than loving creation. We see the world then through the lens of self-aggrandizing narcissism. And I'll tell you some of the differences. When we see the lens of the world through our own loving of me, I see the world as stingy, not enough. Why don't I not get to live in that place and have those parents? And why wasn't I born a pastor in Hawaii like all these guys called to Oahu? Why wasn't I called there to be there? Why doesn't my Instagram picture look like theirs? And why don't I know how to frame it up properly? And my eyes don't line up symmetrically like theirs do. And why do they get to eat all of that? And it doesn't affect their body at all. And they have so many kids and it's so much fun. And they're doing all, my life's not that. Instead of creation being beautiful and full of life, it's now viewed as stingy and cruel. And instead of people being a gift to share love with, they become threats to our own love and peace. If I let this person into my life, they could hurt me. They could take some of my peace and I might not get that back. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to open myself up in that way. Or we see, I could reach out to this person, but that's going to wear me out, and I have to protect my time and my energy, and I have to balance all. I can't, I can't give into that. This is why Paul then calls Jesus Christ the Son as he makes himself revealed as the firstborn of a new creation. You were created through the Son. But then you took his loving creation and you turned it into yourself and you made it into this weird, destructive force in all of creation. But then the son came and he showed us how to reverse that back. 
how to take what we've bent inward and bend it back out again. And he said, watch me do it. I'll come and I'll live this life in a way that you can't. I will love others through a a peace I have that you don't. I will overcome temptation and sin by a nature you don't have. And then I will take all of your selfishness that you've turned into yourself, all of the hurts you've poured out on each other, I will then take it onto myself because I can bear it and I can handle it. And I will let it destroy me so that I can triumph over it. And he shows us the way to overcome hate, the way to overcome jealousy, the way to overcome our selfishness is to selflessly lay down our lives for each other. He says, I will be the first to do it and I will be the one to make it possible. I will lay down my life for my creation. Romans chapter eight, verse 17, a few verses earlier, Paul says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's what we talked about earlier, that Christ has given us what is his. He has made us heirs with him. He has made us co-equal with him. He has made us all children of the Father. And now in this relationship, his heavenly Father, who has loved him for all eternity, becomes our heavenly Father, who will love us now for all eternity. And then the Son becomes our beautiful, loving, caring older brother, who looks to us and says, Just watch me. Keep your eyes on me and I'll show you how to get through this. You're a freshman in high school. I already graduated. I'll tell you how to get through the hallways. I'll tell you how the locker works. I'll tell you which groups to avoid. Follow my example and I will show you how to live. And as your older brother, I won't just show you how to live. I will protect you as you go through it. I will have your back in this. When you mess up, I will pick you back up and we'll keep going. When you fail, you can use my strength and lean on me. And we will walk this journey together now as family. I am your brother. The Father is ours together. And the greatest model that Jesus gives is his obedience. John says this, records Jesus' words about this in John 14, verse 31. But I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Come, let's be going. Jesus does two things throughout his life. He pours the love he has received from the Father back to the Father. He receives it and then pours it back. Receives God's love, pours it out, pours it back, pours it back onto the creation, pours it back onto his image bearers, pours it back to the Father, declares how good and loving the Father is. And the second thing he does is he is obedient and he obediently dies. One of the most beautiful teachings I had ever heard was years ago about Jesus Christ in obedience. And the pastor said, one thing we misunderstand about the resurrection is that It's not Jesus' power that he resurrects. Jesus doesn't resurrect himself. All Jesus does is die. And he obediently lets himself be killed in our place. 
He doesn't know in that moment the promise foreshadowed that he would be resurrected and live again. He understands in shades and knows, but in limited world, being on this earth, he just knows his call is to suffer and die. And he trusts in the loving relationship of the Father and the Spirit to do what's right and conquer death and bring him back into life. As our model, as the perfect image of creation, as the perfect image bearer, the firstborn among all of us who are reborn in Christ Jesus, our call is simple. It's to obediently die to self. It's to break the cycle of taking love and turning it back in, of taking life and turning it back in. It is to break the cycle and to say, I will live my life not for self. I will live my life for others. I will live my life that they will know the love of their maker, that they will know the beauty of the God who created them and breathed life into them. I will follow the model of Jesus and I will die to my own wants and needs and desires so that others can receive the love God has given me. The Son gives us what is His in the love of the Father. The Son reveals the nature Himself of God being a loving Father. And then He demonstrates the perfect nature of what it means to live in God's creation by obediently dying to self. If you'll pray with me in this moment. Some of you in this moment, in, the, in this room, you may not be confident of your relationship with God today. You may not know that you have a relationship with him and, and be able to stand on that. I want to give you a chance today to just take one step forward in that relationship and to say, Jesus Christ, I know that you are God. Just as the Father is, the Son is God himself for all time. And that in you, Jesus, in your death and resurrection, I am given the love of the Father. I am given forgiveness of sin and my own selfishness of turning life back into myself. And that by your nature, I can be set free. I'll give you a chance to pray this prayer with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can commit this prayer together. God, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you came to this earth. You lived fully God, fully man, two natures in one being on earth. That you showed the true nature of love and creation. That you revealed the love of the Father to us. And then you took our sin, our selfishness, onto yourself on the cross. That you laid down your life as an expression of love and obedience. And that Jesus, on the third day, the Father and the Spirit rose you from the grave. And that by believing in you and your triumphant power, we can be resurrected in the future and have fullness of life today. Jesus, you gave your life for me. In this moment, I commit my life to follow you. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen.